Macworld Podcast number 210 for September 22nd, 2010. Hi, welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm Chris Breen. As you're undoubtedly aware, Apple is pushing its mobile devices in a big way. And because it is, we're starting to see changes in how businesses and educators incorporate those devices into their worlds. In this episode, I speak with Macworld contributor Joel Mathis about the iPhone and iPad in business and education. Note that Joel's two-year-old son makes his presence known during our talk. If the sounds produced by toddlers annoys you, feel free to tune in next week. Before we get to Joel and his toddling son, I have a few things to say about Apple and expectations. I find the reaction to Apple's products interesting on both a professional and personal level. There are the reviews, of course, from trusted and not-so-trusted sources, but more than anything, I'm struck by the reactions of regular Mac users. I see a lot of those reactions in Macworld's forums. Take my recent iPod Touch review, for example. A good chunk of that review focused on the new iPod Touch's cameras and how the rear-facing camera isn't nearly as good as the camera found on the iPhone 4. The camera earned that amount of space because it's a new feature and one that readers would obviously be curious about. By now, most of us are familiar with the iPod Touch's existing features, so as a reviewer, you don't really need to go over them time and again. And yet, from some readers' reactions, you'd think that Apple had released a fatally flawed iCamera Touch. The idea of the iPod Touch's camera producing poorer results than the iPhone 4 was somehow a deal killer. And frankly, that left me scratching my head. The iPad Touch hasn't had a camera in the past, so the fact that the new one can capture video and stills at all, at the same price as the previous iPod Touch, seems like a plus to me. Sweetening that plus is the fact that having these cameras brings FaceTime to the Touch. It also allows the iPod Touch to use the iMovie for iPhone app. Point that out, however, and you hear reactions along the lines that Apple is just being greedy and could easily have put the iPhone 4's camera on the iPod Touch if it wasn't so penny-pinching. Which leads to this. First, the iPhone is a subsidized device. You're tied to the thing for two years, and during that time, some of the money you pay to the phone's carrier goes back to Apple. In the U.S., an unsubsidized version of the phone costs $600 for the 16-gigabyte model and $700 for the 32-gigabyte iPhone. A 32-gigabyte iPod Touch, on the other hand, costs $300. I think it's fair to say that Apple is going to load a $300 device with less expensive components than one that costs $700. Secondly, Apple's got this thing about thin. The latest iPod Touch is thinner than the last iteration of the iPod Touch, but not by much. The iPhone 4's camera sensor won't fit into the new Touch, nor could it fit into the last one. So putting that sensor into an iPod Touch means a thicker case, and I don't see Apple sacrificing thin for a better camera. And finally, there's the real issue of exactly what the iPod Touch is supposed to be. If your expectation is that every component of a multifunction device like the iPod Touch is going to replace a dedicated device, the iPod Touch's camera for a point-and-shoot camera that also shoots 720p video, or the iPod Touch's built-in microphone for a field recorder, I think your expectation is a little out of whack. I think of the iPod Touch as a Swiss Army knife. It does a lot of things, but some of the things that it does outside its core mission, which I believe is still media consumption and pocket computing, it does in an if-you-need-it kind of way. If you need a camera, the iPod Touch has one. 
If you need to shoot video, you can. If you need to edit that video, it's possible. If you need to hear sounds the iPod Touch is making without headphones, you can. But just as a handsaw performs a better job than the saw on my Swiss Army knife, so too do dedicated devices exceed the capabilities of functions found on multi-purpose media and computing gadgets. Now, Apple certainly plays a role in out-of-whack expectations. When Steve Jobs trots out a new piece of gear, he doesn't say, Hey, look, here's an incremental update to last year's thingamabob. And when he makes a comparison, of course, it's always positive. For example, he didn't stroll out on stage and tell us, you know, the camera in this iPod Touch is nowhere as good as the iPhones. Or, when I said the iPod Touch has a retina display, I wasn't lying, but that doesn't mean it's the exact same display that we're putting in the iPhone 4. In truth, this one costs less and doesn't look nearly as good when viewed off-axis. But then neither does the CEO of a major auto company darkly announce that this year's crop of cars are uglier and less safe than last's. Part of Job's job is to market Apple's stuff. And because it is, he's going to put the best possible spin on any products he announces. It doesn't make him a liar or Apple's products junk. It's simply part of the process of enticing you to direct your money into Apple's hands. Now, our job is to cut through the spin and look at the reality of these products. Your job is to take that information, balance it against realistic expectations, and make the choice to purchase or sit this one out. And now, Joel Mathis and I talk about Apple's portable devices in business and education. I'm joined by Macworld contributor Joel Mathis and his two-year-old son, who has uh, recently been covering uses of the iPhone and iPad in the worlds of business and education, and that would be Joel and not the two-year-old. We're here to talk about those worlds now and how Apple's portable technology is changing them. Thanks for being here, Joel. Thanks, and and, and I think the two-year-old's probably going to end up being a fine reporter someday, but not quite yet. Should we give him credit by name or just say the two-year-old? We'll save the two-year-old for here now. Okay. So in the course of researching your article, did you get a sense of how prevalent the iPhone is as a business tool? Well, you know, I don't think the iPhones, you know, it's still not quite as common as, as the BlackBerry. I think the the idea that most people have, which is that the BlackBerry is your business tool and the iPhone is still your phone tool, is still kind of the, the, the stereotype that people have. But the, the ground is changing. Um, Apple has said during its uh, July quarterly earnings call that more than 80% of Fortune 100 companies are using the iPhone now, and that's up from about 50% in October 2009. Um, but you know, I think those numbers kind of obscure something because from my research and talking to people, it's not really so much the case that like companies are suddenly distributing iPhones to their employees in lieu of Blackberries. What's happening is, it, to a large degree, is that employees are bringing their iPhones to work mm-hmm. and and kind of creating this bottom-up um, trend where the iPhones are being brought into and used in businesses because it's a, a grassroots thing. Right. now, And that was one of the things I was going to follow up on because I know I was working with a company a, a couple of years ago, and uh, these were physicians, and they were trying to bring the iPhone into their business, and the stumbling block was IT. They just wouldn't let it happen. So, so is that starting to change within IT? I, I, th- that's my sense talking to a couple of companies that, that they were just so overwhelmed by the number of people who, who were just bringing their phones into work and plugging them into their computer um, that 
they didn't have much choice but to to start to bring that in. Of course, you know, Apple's also tried to accommodate that by making um, the phone more, uh, you know, IT friendly over the last couple of iterations. But mostly, again, it's it's been a ground up thing. People have been bringing it in in such numbers because it's cool. You know, it's it's more fun to whip out an iPhone than it is, in, you know, the the BlackBerry. That the, the IT cut departments haven't been given all that much choice. Right. Yeah. And I have seen that come from both the bottom up and and the top down where IT ends up being sandwiched in, in that you have a lot of people who have these devices who are who are coming in and, and IT kind of has to accommodate it because they're getting plugged into their machines. On the other hand, you have people at the C-level, uh, the CEO, the CTO, who are walking in and say, I have this, make it work right, right. now. And and I think when you see that, then you also see them starting – there are some cases where – I wrote about uh, Quintessa Winery in California where the, the owner of the winery actually distributed the iPhone to his staff because it's cool. And he felt like because it's cool, because it's something that his employees will want to play with, that it will get used more often and it will make his employees more productive. That when they whip out their iPhones so they can check their email or so they can check – their Twitter account or Facebook or whatever else, or to play a game. Maybe they'll keep an eye on the spreadsheets. Maybe they'll keep an eye on some of these other productivity apps uh, that he needs them to, to be paying attention to so that he get, even though, yes, they'll be playing stuff, he expects that that will translate into more and better work from his employees. Okay. Well, what other kind of reasons did people give for choosing the iPhone over something like the BlackBerry? Well, you know, I've, you know, a lot of people are talking about just the ability to to take it into uh, into the into an environment with clients. Um, you know, they, they're using the iPad more this way probably now, but but until the last few months, some people were talking about you know they could without having to be weighed down by a computer, a laptop computer, they could show a concept, um, an art concept or or an advertising concept or something like that. To their clients, you know, right there on the spot without having to plug in a bunch of bulky equipment that it made them more mobile in that fashion. Uh, you know, and some of you know, some of the ways that the businesses are using it are exactly like you or I would use our iPhones. Their their social networking has become a really huge part of a lot of businesses. And, and uh, you know, I talked to a, a wedding planner also in California, and and she says that social networking is the essence of how she gets jobs. And, and so she's very reliant on both her iPhone and her iPad to kind of be in contact all day, every day that way. Now, yeah, I thought that was interesting that uh, I believe this event coordinator is in her early 20s. Right. And so she's come out of college um, and out of her adolescence with something like Facebook being very, very common. And that she doesn't uses... really remember the world without Facebook almost. Right. Right. And so that this these devices then become an extension of social networking services. And then she turns around and uses it for business. Right, right, and and she said it, she would not be able to get the business that she does, and and it's you know it's hard to say whether how true that is because like you say she's she's just been wired in that's naturally how she's wired, and and so she chooses her devices like the iPhone, like the iPad, in order to kind of facilitate that in a mobile way. Right now, from her example and other people you've talked to, are you getting the sense that people are? Carrying the iPhone and the iPad in lieu of carrying a laptop anymore? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I wrote the story um, last month um, about the iPad in business. And, and pe- people like these devices because you can carry them very easily. They're even, even 
it's even more mobile than a laptop, which doesn't, you know, I think when the iPad was introduced, a lot of people were talking, well, that's just a big iPhone and kind of chuckled and didn't see really where it fit in. But for a lot of these people that, uh, you know, a lot of people use the iPhone and the iPad in, in combination, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that they, they do find it that it's just a little easier to kind of take on the road or take to a presentation, um, and particularly because you know most of the iPads and certainly all the iPhones come with uh, the the 3G uh, connection where you don't necessarily have that with your with your with your laptop or if you do you have to have stick in a big you know unwieldy right. you know add-on and so they just find it easier um, to to use these things and, and you know there's also the cool factor you know I talked about the Quintessa winery I think think to some extent. There's the, the cool factor that people just like to be seen with the coolest, latest toys, and certainly the iPad is it. Right. Now, let's start education. Last month, you penned an article called How Schools Are Putting the iPad to Work. Right. Um, this is another way that handheld devices are changing the way we do things. So in this case, how are schools and educators using the iPad? I think we're still finding that out. I think this is the year that, that you're seeing a lot of experimenting going on. Uh, there are some schools uh, that are just distributing their iPads out to every single student on campus. And they're going to find out if something arises from that. And I'm thinking of schools like the Illinois Institute of Technology. They're just throwing them out there and see what happens. Um, there are other, other uh, schools. And uh, I wrote about Abilene Christian University, Oklahoma State's another one that are doing very controlled experiments with just maybe a, a, a hundred or so iPads in, in a few targeted classes to see how it can be used, if it is better or equal to or worse than using traditional paper texts and and traditional methods of learning, but you know, there's lots of ways they're using them when they when in in these targeted environments. They're they're using apps that will um, let them engage students directly. They can do insta polling. You know, one of the things I heard from a lot of, of professors is that. They feel like they only get about the attention and direct activity of about 20% of their students during any given class period. Well, if you're insta-polling, then all of a sudden the students are asked to kind of respond to something right then. It's kind of like a pop quiz that's extremely pop because you can set it up and, and have it completed within a matter of 30 seconds to a minute. Um, but that way you know you're still getting your, your the attention of your students. Uh so in some cases, they are using it to replace texts, um, and I wrote a little bit about how the, the National Association of College Bookstores is a little leery of this because they make a lot of their money yeah. from from traditional texts, and, and are, they're trying to figure out how they can take advantage of a, of a shift to e-text because everybody expects that's what's going to happen uh, through the iPad maybe, but also through through other things. Although, you know, I also wrote – you know, the other um, methods that they might be using to get the e-text, the Kindle, just hasn't gone over very well in the, in the world of higher education. But the people who kind of came out of the Kindle experiments last year are more excited about the iPad because they see it as more organic um, and and just better able to multitask and just something that's more intuitive for students to use. Right. Now, reading through that article, there are clearly some educators who are really enthusiastic about it, like uh, Bill Wicking from Hawaii Preparatory Academy. Um, And then on the other hand, there are people that are very skeptical about it. Um, As you say, kind of just saying, well, here, 
you know, here, this group of students, we're going to give you some iPads and see what happens. Can you characterize kind of how the two sides work? What do those enthusiasts see in the future? And what do the skeptics see that that may not make this a, a game changer? Well, I think the skeptics just think they've seen a lot of promises before. Um, you know, I talked to one guy who's actually a bit of a, an iPad enthusiast, and yet he pointed out that he had a dusty Apple Newton uh, sitting in in his closet, and right. that had at one point been promised that that was going to change things. And so, and you know, even the Kindle last year is the most recent example. You know, maybe something nice to read on, but it, it's it's not necessarily good for trying to flip between texts. And so. So there was a lot of hype about that about a year ago this time, and it didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. So, so the people who the people who are skeptics, I think, just have history on their side that there have been lots of promises about tech, technology transforming uh, education that just simply haven't come to pass. Um, that most students still, even in the in ten years of the twenty first century, use pen and paper and, and old fashioned textbooks to to do the the majority of their learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I think the people who are enthusiasts um, see, for one thing, is the interactivity that the that the, the iPad offers. Uh, you know, we, we talked about Bill Weeking, and I know you've talked to him before. He, he may be the greatest evangelist alive of <laughs> iPads use in education. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it's because, you know, you have apps there that don't aren't just telling you information and you absorb it, but you interact with the information. He talked to he he's particularly fond of the Starwalk application, uh, which lets students raise their iPads to the sky and have a map of the stars there in front of them and explain what's going on in the stars that they can see in the sky. Uh, and it's kind of like having a planetarium right there at your side that you can slip into your, into your, uh, your, your knapsack or whatever it is that you take to school with you. Uh, it's the interactivity. I think that, that, that it most excites the educators. I talked about the Insta polling and talked about the, the way students can interact with the apps. And I think that's, that's a big chunk of it. I, it to some extent it's, it, there's more mundane, um, hopes too, that a lot of these professors and a lot of these teachers just want to get rid of paper mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I talked to, talk to the to the one uh, teacher in Scotland who who said, you know, even in Scotland, his students are just weighed down with just tons and tons of textbooks that hurt his students' backs. Well, you know, they're getting rid of all those now, and they're just sticking an iPad in, into the into the students' uh, backpacks, and and you know, physically, that's going to be nicer for the students. You know, and and professors and teachers who don't have offices clogged with you know, unmarked papers are also going to be grateful for that kind of thing. Right. So given your conversations with business people and educators, how game-changing are these iOS devices? Are they simply an extension of the laptop, or do you think we're looking at something completely new? I think I think, I think it's certainly an evolution. I, I don't think it's an extension of the laptop, because I, th- I think the way I hear that these educators and business people talking – that they're able to be mobile in their business in, in ways that they haven't been before. And yeah, the, the laptops are supposed to be relatively mobile, but they just don't, you, you can't just pick them up and go and maybe the way you can certainly with your phone and, and, and even with the iPad. Um, I, I think that this is seen by people who have embraced this as just a, a really a way, a, a way that they're changing the way they do business. Right. Now, uh, on a very personal note, because uh, it sounds like there's a large robot clomping <laughs> through your room there, uh, you, have a, you have a toddler, and, right. uh, and you probably have some of these devices. 
Yes. How do you uh, expose him to these things, or do you? We do. We do. Um, I actually replaced my iPhone recently and, and gave him my uh, deactivated, it no longer has phone service, um, iPhone, my, my 3G that I had had. Uh, and because, honestly, it, it made sense to do it because every time I or his mother would turn on our phones, he was over in our laps immediately. And it's, it's, it's inter- interesting to me because his it's a very intuitive device for him. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we downloaded a couple of kind of kids apps for him. There's one where you crack an egg a couple of times and then a bunny or a duck or something like that appears. And he's just completely delighted by that. But just the ability to touch the information and manipulate it using your hands is, is extremely intuitive to him to the point that when we have just a regular laptop out or a regular computer out, he's up trying to touch the screen and smearing our screens on our regular laptops because he thinks that's how you use computers. And, you know, by the time he gets old enough to really have a computer, that may be, in fact, be the case. Right. Okay, well, it sounds like the robot is rapidly approaching. And so um, <laughs> I w- I will let you go. But um, in the meantime, we will have links to Joel's article in the show notes. And thanks very much for being here, Joel. Thanks, Chris. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast. I'd like to thank Joel Mathis, his two-year-old son, and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPad, iPod, iPhone, and technology news, views, and information at Macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you around.